Revelation 21, let's go over there. We are now looking after the millennial reign of Christ in heaven and some activity that is going on. We read it back in verse 1. Of course, last time that John saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. We, we really focused our attention on that one verse last week. Let's move on over here to Revelation 21 verses 2 through 8. I'm going to read 2 through 4 and then study that part before we get to the last part. John goes on and he says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Oftentimes I I, I look through news items on on Yahoo or Google or MSN, and they have these little news items that go by, you know, little by little to give you other things to look at, and uh, suggested reading on certain topics, such as the ten top cities in the country to retire or the five national parks that need to be visited in one's lifetime uh, or, the, or the five most beautiful cities in the world. On that last topic, the lists are pretty subjective based on the spe- specific journalist's likes or dislikes. For example, there's one list that reads, number five, Tokyo, number four, New York, number three, Shanghai, uh, number two, Chicago, and number one, Hong Kong. And that, that means Hong Kong would be the, the most beautiful city in the world. And I, I, I kind of scratch my head because I, I've been to Hong Kong and I must have been booked on the wrong side of town when I was there because I didn't see pretty stuff in that area where I was. Uh, I mean, the city is pretty at night. I mean, because they have this magnificent structures and of course there's so much commerce going on and, and, and all. But... Uh, other lists don't even include uh, Hong Kong in its top five. But why do I bring this up? Well, well, let's face it. The most beautiful city in the world has yet to be seen. The most beautiful city in the world has yet to be seen. Primarily because it's not of this world and it's not in this world yet. We've just gotten a glimpse of it now in verse 2. The new Jerusalem. The crowning jewel of the new creation. In subsequent verses, we will see that it is made mostly of jewels and precious stones. But it will come down out of heaven from God. I hope you notice that in verse 2. That it will come down out of heaven from God. It is coming from God. It is really letting us know that it is God who has prepared it, God who has constructed it, God who has built it, God who has made it. And it comes from God. It is being prepared in heaven, if not already, and will be moved into place when the time comes. Now, while it is being prepared, as it says, a bride adorned for her husband, rest assured that the city is not the bride. It just says it is being adorned as a bride. But the city is not the bride. We believers are. Believers in Jesus Christ are the bride. Collectively, of course. The city is an adornment itself. 
The city is an adornment that reveals the wonder of God's love for His people, for us. It is a place that our Lord Jesus has been preparing for us collectively and for each of us individually. It is the real estate, as it were, in which our mansions are being constructed. I thought again of, of John, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I read it a lot. John 14, you all know that. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. We know. We know where he went. We know that he began to prepare for us this place on the cross. Began to prepare it there, but then he said he would complete that work. Now we know from Scripture that there are two Jerusalems. There are two Jerusalems. One earthly and the other, of course, heavenly, as we're seeing here in this passage. But go back, if you will, to Galatians chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, where Paul is making a distinction between Hagar and Sarah, uh, between the flesh and between the spirit. And then also he mentions this in verse 25, For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. And you can also say, if you mention Sinai, of course, we're dealing with the law. But then in verse 26 it says, But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all, the Jerusalem of God's grace. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24, a very important passage for us to understand this second Jerusalem that we see coming down from heaven. It's Hebrews 12, verse 22. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now notice, not the earthly Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem, the, uh, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, notice what we're coming to in the heavenly city, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And so the Jerusalem, in the eternal state, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of verse 2 of Revelation 21 is not the city of Jerusalem that we know today, but it is still a significant city that is loved by God. And I speak of the present Jerusalem. It is still a city that God loves. It is still a city that God has chosen. For those of you who have been to that city, and I know some of you have because you've been with me there, and I look forward to seeing it again in January. But to see that day, uh, that city, this, to see that land, is still a blessing. Yet it, didn't, it cannot compare to the eternal city, of course. So we're looking for that day of, as well, that we will see the city that comes down from God. But in Psalm 48, verses 1 and 2, to remind us of the preciousness of the, of the earthly Jerusalem, 
It says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness, beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great King. And then if you go down to verse 8 of the same chapter, the same psalm, it says, As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. Selah. Selah is a, is a word that is used often in the book of Psalms to, uh, to make note of, for the people reading it or singing them, to make note of the fact that it is at this time that you meditate on that thought. So in essence it says that uh, as we've heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. Think about that for a moment is what Selah means. Think about that, that God will establish it forever. But the new Jerusalem will be the place of our real citizenship. The new Jerusalem will be the place of our real citizenship. You all remember, and we've quoted this many times in Philippians chapter 3 verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. Now, if you have the King James Version, which is what I have and what I use, it says our conversation. But the word in the Greek is the word polituma, polituma. And if you'll notice, the first part of the word kind of sounds like politics. Well, it, it has something to do with governance or it has something to do with community. So it has more to do with citizenship than just plain conversation. Now, understand that conversation in, in, in the King James is, 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 is a word that has to do with our uh, conduct, how we live within the community God has given us as, as the body of Christ. So for our citizenship, it says, is in heaven. Our citizenship. We're, we have heavenly passports that say that we're from this city. We're from heaven. You do have that passport, don't you? Okay, I'm, I'm just, I was just wondering. I thought maybe I better, we better do an, an immigration check here and see what uh, city you're from. Now, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. Notice the Lord Jesus Christ. So this city is distinguished by the terms. I'm going back now to verse 2. Let's go back to verse 2 of our text. This city, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, is distinguished by the terms holy and new. Holy and new. And as Jerusalem, a third term, by the way, as, as Jerusalem, its endurance and permanency is linked to our redemption. It is linked to, uh, to our redemption. Why do I mention that? Because it is the reminder of where our Messiah died for us. He died outside of this, the gates of Jerusalem. But it was still considered Jerusalem. He died for us there, and then He rose again to redeem us to Himself that we would ever be with Him. In these three terms, holy, set apart, new, fresh, and always fresh, always new, and Yerushalayim, in these three terms we find the perfect community for God's people. The perfect community for God's people. 
Let's look at Revelation 21 verse 3. Because then John says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold. Now that's, that's a word that we should attribute usually and always to the Lord. Jesus used it many times. God in speaking to the prophets, He said, Behold, take great notice in, look at it clearly, Focus upon this. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. The ancient, taberla- the ancient tabernacle in the wilderness represented God's presence and glory in the midst of Israel. Now, suffice it to say that, that when God gave the plan for the building of the tabernacle to Moses, he said this is the exact plan. And he called it the tabernacle. Just keep that in mind. That it was the tabernacle of heaven that was the pattern for the earthly tabernacle. So the ancient tabernacle in the wilderness represented God's presence and God's glory in the midst of the nation and the people of Israel. Take, for example, Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 and 12, where it says, I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I will be with you to love you. And to be, and to give whatever you need as my people, and I'll walk with you. And I, I took notice of this phrase, I will walk among you. Because when you go back to the garden, what did he do with Adam? And what was Adam doing there? Twiddling his thumbs because he didn't have candy crush? What was he doing? It tells us that God walked with him. Wasn't that a beautiful picture? Isn't that a beautiful picture that God would walk with his creation and be among him and dwell with him? God was dwelling with Adam. God was dwelling with the man and the woman when the temptation came. He says, I'll walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. I think of this passage here in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 26. Consider it as well, verses 26 to 28. It says, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in the midst forever. Now, keep, every time you see forever in your Bibles, you should mark it down. Because God's not just saying things just to say them. If He says forever, He means forever. Which means eternally. And then He says, My tabernacle also shall be with them. Notice, Indeed I will be their God and they shall be My people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel. He sanctifies them. He sets them apart. 
when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. People don't like to hear that about God and Israel. This is why Israel is so hated. And why the, the, the portion of the church that, love, that loves Israel and stands with Israel because God has commanded us to love them and, and, and to bless them, that's why we're hated too. But that's okay. God didn't love them because they were great or of many numbers or powerful. He loved them and chose them because He loved them. By the way, that's what He says in Deuteronomy chapter 7. We can go on and on about that. But this is, I, I mentioned this because it was really the other two verses before, but I had to add this because of what he says. The nations also will know, they will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore, which is yet, of course, to come. But it's coming because God has promised it and because it's going to be something that will last forever. Now, all of the rich meaning that is symbolized in the tabernacle of Israel was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All of that rich meaning that was symbolized and everything made in the tabernacle was in fact fulfilled in Jesus. The word translated tabernacle, now this is back in Revelation 21 verse 3. The word translated tabernacle, actually, yeah, verse 3. It is the word skene in the Greek. Skene, S-K-E-N-E, transliterated, which literally means the place where God dwells. Now we've oftentimes said the tabernacle is a temporary location or temporary place, you know, a tent rather than a, a structure that would be built later, which is called the temple. But God does not choose to call himself a Temple, he calls, he calls his place of meeting with them a tabernacle. We've seen that in Old Testament. We see it now here in the New Testament. Because literally the word means the place where God dwells. Now this means that God will make his tabernacle with his saints forever and ever. It should be very clear then why he did not say that the temple of God is with men. In the eternal state, we will not be engaged with a temple made with men's hands, but with God himself. Not even the beautiful and elaborate temple of Solomon could contain him. And even Solomon understood that. Even Solomon knew that because in Second Chronicles 6 verse 18, Solomon said, But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? He says, Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Even Solomon recognized that the temple that he built and made in such a beautiful way was not even going to contain him. So God says, I, I've already got a tabernacle. It's in heaven. And I will bring it and dwell with you. And I will be your God. And you will be my people. So the provision of the eternal state rests on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about that thought. 
the provision of the eternal state, the provision of what we are talking about in Revelation chapter 21, rests all on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the bride's sufficiency will be in the bridegroom. The bride's sufficiency will be in the bridegroom. In other words, we will rest assured that in Christ, we shall be well provided for. I mean, we're talking about a bridegroom that makes no mistakes. We're talking about a bridegroom that is perfect, a bridegroom that is holy, a bridegroom that loves and cares and is merciful and gracious. Not like some of us bridegrooms that, you know, we kind of like, you know. Through the first couple of years of marriage, right? Oh, finally we get it down the road. Folks, you can be married 30 years and still do that. But our bridegroom, we can rest assured in him, will be provided for. God's original purpose for the human race will be restored. God's original purpose for us, for the human race, will be restored to enjoy, listen, to enjoy a personal, face-to-face relationship with Him. You don't have to take a number. I always think about that. So impersonal. Number 45... Remember when Warren Smith was here and he was talking about going to Giardelli for, for some chocolate up in San Francisco and he said, number 666? Now, who wants that number, right? So impersonal. God knows us by name. And by the way, I don't understand some of these guys that change their names, you know? 50 Cent? I don't think God's going to know that person as 50 Cent if he does come to the Lord. I don't know if he is or not, but you know... El peseta, whatever. I mean, it's like, God, you know. What is this thing about this name? You know, we change our name. Hey, I'm so and so. God knows you by your name. We come to Him. Let's humble ourselves and take the name He's given us. Look, I mean, let's face it. What about poor Jacob? Yaakov. I mean, he's called a thief. Thank God that he changed his name to Israel, but... How many times do we see that? We, I mean, we've been studying through the book of Genesis. He's still called Jacob many times. He knows us by name. Everything that occurs between the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 until Revelation 21 is to prepare a people to enjoy and worship with God. To, uh, I'm sorry, to enjoy fellowship with God and with Christ. Everything from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21 is given to prepare a people to enjoy fellowship with God. And this city will be filled with great joy. It will be abundant joy. It will be overflowing joy because God will dwell with man and there will once again be that intimate fellowship that we have seen in the Garden of Eden before man's fall. Where God walked in the garden with Adam in the cool of the day. I just kind of figured it didn't matter what, what part of the world was, you were in at that time. It was the cool of the day. Not like summertime in El Paso. There will be communion with God experienced by all. 
It is, as David cried out in Psalm 16, verse 11, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. You know, we, we, sing, we can sing this. I, I, we used to do a song where this was one of the lyrics. That we can just, in God's presence, express fullness of joy. And there are days when we do that, isn't, aren't there? I mean, there are days when we do that. But we also have days when we don't do it. And then we wonder... Where's my joy? What, what happened here? But then God reassures us. And He reminds us that He's with us through the storms and through the trials of life. And then we're full of joy again. So think that in His presence, there will always be fullness of joy, especially now in Revelation 21, because in Revelation 21 as we'll see in verse 4 here in just a moment. All the conditions have changed. So I trust that we will shout out the very same thing as David. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. For our desire, you see, is to dwell with the Lord and the complete fulfillment of that is seen in the revelation of John. But as John said in his first letter to the church, listen to what he said. First John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. He said, behold, uh, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Now hold on to that thought for a while. Now we, don't, we don't know yet what, what's going to happen, but we know that when He is revealed, when Jesus is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Well, that's the book of Revelation. The word revealed tells us that. When He's revealed, well, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. Now really, what's the focus here in this verse? The one word, hope. Do you have that hope? Because if you have that hope that any day, any moment, Jesus Christ will come, when He said He would. He didn't say when, but He did say He would. And you're waiting for that. If you have that hope, it could be today, it could be tonight, it could be tomorrow. But if you have that hope, it purifies you. And I think that sometimes we set aside that hope to kind of let the flesh do what it wants to do, but there's no pure, purity in that. There, there's, there, there's, a, there's a stumbling, and, and, and it's getting back to that understanding that because Jesus is coming, and we have that hope, that our hearts and our lives will be so purified each and every day. It's, it's not us making ourselves better. It's just trusting and leaving the Lord to, to do His work in us. Yes, we have to walk right. Yes, we need to, to trust the Lord in all of these things. We, yes, we need to spend time in it. We need to pray. We need to do all those things. But never set those things aside. Because we look forward to that day. That should be what we as believers in Jesus Christ look forward to. The day when He is revealed and that we will be like Him 
and we will see him as he is. Are you ready to see that? We need to be ready now because, again, it could happen at any moment. So look at verse 4 now. It says of our text, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. You know, life, life today. Life is often characterized, isn't it? By death, by sorrow, and pain. It produces many tears and much crying. But the Lord will, capital W-I-L-L, the Lord will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Have you ever, have you ever had someone wipe, wipe away your tears when you were crying? It's, it's a tender gesture that only someone who is very close to you should attempt. It is symbolic of their desire to alleviate your sorrow. With Jesus, it isn't symbolic. It's sincere in the truest sense of the word as all your pain and suffering come to an abrupt end, He will wipe the tears from our eyes. The idea is that when He wipes them, they won't be there anymore and there won't be any more after that. It's exciting to know we will finally be free from death and free from pain. I do have to admit that it is impossible for me right now to begin to fathom what it means to be without sorrow. How can I be without sorrow if someone I care for deeply chooses not to be in heaven but will be in the lake of fire? There are some who believe that the former things will pass away means that we won't remember the sorrows because God will alter our memories. Others believe that the unsaved will just cease to exist. But we know that that's not biblical. But I'd like for you to consider something written in Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65 verses 17 through 19. I want you to consider this, please. Because it's God speaking. And he says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. And then think of verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. God is very clear about this. I don't understand it fully. But we must simply take God's word here as truth. 
And consider, if you will, the next verse of our text. Verse 5. Revelation 21. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. So we see the consistency of Old Testament, New Testament, of, of Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament Scriptures. The consistency. I'm going to make all things new. God is into making things new. And I believe I mentioned this not long ago, but, well, last week, because that was the last time I was here. But, you know, I mentioned that uh, when God created the heavens and the earth, and, and he applied that statement, and God saw that it was good. For everything he created, God saw that it was good until at the very end he said, and God saw everything he created, and he saw it was very good. And it was new. And it was fresh. And it was righteous. It was holy. It was pure. Until, of course, the fall. But God was determined. All things would be new again. So he says, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Right. For these words are true and faithful. You know, it almost seems that John is so blown away at all the glorious things that he was being told that he just stood there awestruck. And, and even that thought that, you know, that once again God says, and I'll make all things new. And, he, and he's seeing all of these things and God has to tell him, Hey, John, write! And think of all the things that John has seen so far. And I don't mean just in this, in this chapter. Think, think about everything before. All of the devastation, all the destruction that would come upon man during the time of the tribulation period. And all because of the people's rejection of Jesus Christ. And now he sees this glorious light of hope and he's, he's blown away. Thinking that it's almost too good to be true. Almost too good to be true. And yet, what does the Lord tell him? (laughs) He says, right, these words are true and faithful. John, in your state, at your time, and in your humanness still, I can understand that you're blown away by all of this stuff. But these words are true and faithful. We can trust the Word of God. We can trust the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. We can trust every word between Genesis 1-1 and the end of Revelation chapter 22. It won't lead us astray. God's Word will never lead us astray. God's Word will never lie to us. God's Word will never lead us down the path that we, that, that we shouldn't go down, but it will lead us down the path that we need to travel if we are willing to listen and obey and trust you see man's ideas and man's philosophies and man's ways are constantly changing aren't they constantly changing but God's word is still the same and it is unchanging and what God said 2,000 years ago applies to us today and remember that Jesus said in Luke 21 verse 33 heaven and earth will pass away but my words will by no means pass away now here's a question I want you all to ponder for just a moment. Well, you can, you can ponder it for more than just a moment, but not too long because I have to finish up here. But just, just think of this question. In light of the new heaven 
and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, in light of these new things, is man's perfect state an issue of innocence or of redemption? Just think about the question. Is man's perfect state an issue of innocence or redemption? Okay, that's enough. Don't ponder anymore. (laughs) I think that most of us would agree that none of us would have ever wanted Adam to do what he did. You ever read a, a book, a novel, let's say, of... And, and, and the author is so good at, at, at displaying a person's uh, character in, in, a, in a plot. And, and all of a sudden you see him going down a certain way and you say, Don't go that way. Don't, no, don't do that. You turn the page and he says, Oh, you did it. And we think about that with Adam. Why, Adam? God created you perfect and, and, and he gave you a whole garden. And Eve, you know, gave, gave you guys this whole place. And all you had to do was just stay away from that one tree. So I, I say this very sincerely. I mean, I think that most of us agree that none of us would have ever wanted Adam to do what he did. But it has, it has, it has been said, by the way, that, that we gain more in Jesus than we ever lost in Adam. We've gained more in Jesus than we ever lost in Adam. And so the perfect eternal state is one not of innocence, but of redemption. That is why we can call Jesus our Redeemer. Ephesians 1 7 says, In Him we have redemption. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Your homework tonight is to read all of Ephesians chapter 1. From here on, because all, the rest of this is, talks a lot about this very issue of redemption. But because of time, I have to go on. Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. Speaking of Jesus, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated or has transferred us or conveyed us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So now we're given an invitation. Let's go back to our text. We're given an invitation and a warning by the Lord in verses 6 to 8 of our text. And it says, And he said to me, It is done. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God. And he shall be my son. That's interesting. Because he's really dealing with inheritance here. And it isn't just going to be for one son, but for sons and daughters who come by faith to Jesus Christ. But then verse 8 says, the contrast here, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable. By the way, the word cowardly is, is uh, it's a different word in the King James. The fearful. I'll talk about that in a moment when we wrap up, because we're going to wrap up here. 
the cowardly, uh, the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, uh, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So there's a reminder, you see. There's the invitation, and then there's the warning. And here again is this invitation for all to come to Him and receive those living waters, as verses 6 and 7. And when we get to verse 8, we will see the result of those who refuse that. But, but the Lord makes this statement, it is done. What's done? The redemption of man. That's done. All that sin had done is now reversed. Do you see the wonders of God's love? Do you see the wonders of God's grace? That when the serpent turned everything upside down in the garden and, and, and brought man to that place of death, God has said, no more death. Do you know where He destroyed death? He destroyed it on the cross. He destroyed sin and death on the cross, but to bring as many to, to redemption, to bring as many to glory, came the time of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God knew there would be a day when redemption would be com- completed. And this is it. It is done. Death has been swallowed up. And for man, there are only two final destinations he can go. And now all those destinations have been made. All these things are completed. And each one will enter eternity that is dependent upon their choice. The Lord or their rejection of Him. That is what is laid before us. And even in this passage where we have seen the glories of heaven and the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. I think of Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. We're going to go over just a little bit, a couple of minutes, don't worry. But in Psalm 42, verse 1, it says, As the heart or the deer panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My question to you is, as it says, he who is thirsty, come, but, but are we thirsty for God? Are we thirsty for God? I know there's some preachers who will tell you, oh, you don't have to be thirsty for God, you already have it. Yeah, but we're human. I, I keep reading in the scriptures that we're told that we're, that we're, we're earthen vessels. Earthen vessels made out of what this earth is. Uh, how was uh, Adam created? From the dust of the ground. We're earthen vessels. I like what one person called it. He said we were cracked pots. We're cracked pots. And we leak. And every day we need to ask God to fill us with His wisdom and His grace, with His Holy Spirit. Fill us every day, Lord, because we're, we're leaky. Do we hunger to know Him more? Are we thirsty and hungry to know the Lord more? That very issue of being thirsty and hungry for God is what God really desires for us right now. Because one day when we find that it is done, the redemption of man also, we won't have to thirst anymore. We won't have to drink. We won't have to hunger anymore. Because we will be satisfied with our bridegroom. 
The problem comes as Satan offers many other alternatives to quench our thirst and our hungers. And we go after them thinking that they will quench and satisfy us. The reality is that we are left thirsty, we're left hungry and wanting more because outside of Christ we will never be satisfied. Once we have tasted the wonders and the glories of God in Christ, there's nothing in this world that can satisfy we try to satisfy them while walking away for a while. It, it just, we know it doesn't work. Every one of us can be a testimony of that very thing. The great thing is that Jesus will not leave us in that condition if you'll only turn to Him. He won't leave you in that condition. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5 or 6, Blessed are they which hunger and thirst which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Listen to what Jesus says in John 7, 37 and 38. On the, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The fact is, in our text, it says in verse 7, that he that overcometh shall inherit all things. He who overcomes. Well, how do we overcome? I'm sure it's nice for us to know that the overcomers will, will endure and all, but how do we overcome? Well, very simply, John, in his, again in his first letter, 1 John 5, he says in verses 4 and 5, he says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Are you born again of the Spirit of God? Are you a born again believer in Jesus Christ? Because that's speaking about you. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. But by the way, when it says our faith, it doesn't mean that you conjure that faith up. I mean, because God gave that to us. We didn't have faith until we came to know the Lord. But then in verse 5 it says, Who is he who overcomes the world but he that believes, or he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's where our faith lies, in knowing who Jesus is. And you read on in, in, in 1 John chapter, well, all of 1 John. Read the Gospel of John. Read the, read the Revelation, which we have over the past almost three years. It's amazing. Read 1 John chapter 2 to 9 where it talks about uh, the spirit of Antichrist. Read chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4, 1 John, uh, 1 John because it talks about testing the spirits to see if whether they are of God and what it takes, you know, what, you know, how you test them. It's all there. I'll tell you this, if we move away from who Jesus Christ is and we know what he is and who he is from the scriptures and move toward all these other ideas of, about who Jesus may, may be, We'll thirst. We'll go thirsty. We'll go hungry. And none of those things will satisfy. Only Jesus will. The very fact is, you know, and I want to just take the time to real quickly look at verse 8 of our text because it says, the cowardly, the, the fearful. Fearful of what? The cowardly today would be the cowards that that refuse to believe in Jesus Christ because of what others would think. Think about that. 
fearful of what others would say, what our family has said to us. Was that way for me? Probably that way for a lot of us. Unbelieving, of course, that's pretty, pretty clear there. <clears throat> Abominable. The worst kind of sinners. Abominations are terrible things that God has warned about. Murders. Cain was the first murderer, and, and from then came all this hatred of life and displays against it. The sexually immoral. That it covers every kind of sexual sin. God created us as sexual beings, but to follow His plan and order. Sorcerers, all kinds of demon worship and, and false Christs and worshiping of, of idols, which is the next thing, idolaters, and all liars. Why all liars? Because Satan, the devil, was a liar from the beginning, Genesis chapter 3. And it was that lie that permeates every lie. It's saying that God is not faithful, that God will not keep his promises, that God is the liar. All lies. Because God is about the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the devil continues to say, did he really say that? Did he really mean that? Every lie shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, and the second death. And so we press on from here the next time. And we're not all that late. Actually, if we had started on time, we would have ended on time. So let's keep these things in our hearts as we think about them and meditate upon them this week. Let's pray.